0: Welcome to Dial In, the podcast about customer service, automation, AI, contact center, and everything in between. I'm your host, Gadi Shamiya, the CEO and co-founder of Replicant, the company that automate uh, customer service calls. Today, we have a really special episode. Uh, This podcast was recorded live uh, in Nashville um, with the CEO of OpenAI, Brad Lightcap. OpenAI is a company that took the world in storm um, when it launched ChatGPT late last year, and change everything we think and believe uh, about AI. I had a fantastic conversation on stage uh, with some of our best customers uh, in the room. Uh, I, I'm sure you're gonna enjoy it a lot. Um, without a further ado, let's switch to Brad. I was in the, uh, um, I was following the, the All In Summit. If anybody um, uh, watched the podcast, I've, I've seen that Elon Musk uh, joined from his airplane uh, using Starlink. This is not as cool, but uh, where where are we we calling you from? Where are you now?
1: Uh, I am in Las Vegas. I I was speaking at an event last night. And um, my hotel Wi-Fi just cut, so I'm on my phone. I apologize. Uh, Hopefully, uh, this, this holds up.
0: You may not know, but I, three years ago, moved to Las Vegas. Uh, If you need a place to crash, I have a really nice house, so just talk with me um, later. (laughs) The internet is great, and I have Starlink as a backup, by the way. So I'm so terrified about no internet. I have Starlink as a backup. So Brad, maybe just the first question, just introduce yourself. How do you get into working as a chief operating officer for the hottest company on the planet right now?
1: Yeah. Well. Um, so first, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to see you all. Um, I was excited to do this one. I've got uh, a lot of um, uh, excitement and hopefully um, some stories to share about uh, about our um, ability to to incorporate this technology um, into into support. Um, but yeah, my my path to OpenAI was uh, was somewhat um, somewhat lucky. I guess um, I was previously an investor at Y Combinator. Uh, and OpenAI actually started as a YC research project, people don't know this, but um, it was a nonprofit back started back in late 2015, early 16, which is exactly the time I started at YC. Um, and so I, we kind of grew up together somewhat at YC and um, it was a project I always thought was really interesting. And it was really the only project in that YC research batch that started working. And I really was kind of studying exactly what was going on and how, you know, how it was going on, and this was 2016, 2017. Um, and when uh, and Sam had asked me at one point if if I could come help uh, with the restructuring of it and, and and fundraising, and so I joined as a CFO in 2018, uh, and it's been a journey ever since.
0: And you know, when I'm I'm working on AI from 2017, I've been thinking about AI from 2012 when when it was just very basic. But it feels to me that the world discovered AI on November 30th, 2022, which somehow the date is is engraved in my brain. When you guys launch um, ChatGPT, Ch- was this a surprise to you that that the world really, the AI world really can be thought of as a before uh, December, November twenty twenty two and after November twenty two, or you expected this this uh, uh, outcome?
1: You know, in in retrospect, it's not surprising. At the time, it was surprising, um, and what I mean by that is. So ChatGPT is is a is a, a, a GPT three class model, um, and the only thing that we did to it that was different than our base GPT three model was we made it slightly better at talking to people. We made it better at dialogue, and but it was the same kind of underlying intelligence. And so for us at the time, there was no way looking forward to think that that just that subtle change in kind of how the model can can interact with a person was going to lead to anything that was um, uh Kind of anomalously um uh, you know more more engaging or, or or um would 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 be the the type of thing that would would set off the reaction that it did um in retrospect I think the thing that really is apparent is um really kind of how if you make these models more human like if you make them a little bit more approachable and you make them a little bit easier to use and you really tap into the thing that makes them special, which is that they can take a natural language input that doesn 't have to be perfect it can be it can be highly descriptive or highly not descriptive, um, but it just can 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 proxy natural language and the way that you would talk to another person and make use of that and make sense of it and return an answer that's that's rich and, and useful that um, that's a really powerful thing and um, so looking back i I guess we we have a new appreciation for it
0: and one thing I thought about was. It's, this is not the first general purpose chatbot that's launched on the internet. And everyone else that was launched before just became racist after 24 hours and was uh, taking off the, the world. And, and we said, okay, whatever, let's wait out three years for the next bot that will become racist. How did you prevent ChatGPT from becoming one more um, general purpose bot that, that just learned to become racist after a few days and, and uh, become useful, useless because of that?
1: Yeah, so this this really goes back to OpenAI's mission, uh, which is to build artificial general intelligence that's safe and benefits all of humanity. And we always underscore the safety part uh, of our work. We spend probably half of the amount of time, half of our, our amount of time that we spend training the model um, doing kind of equal amounts of work on the safety side. So GPT-4 is a good example. When we, uh, when we trained GPT-4, it took uh, a few months to train GPT-4, we subsequently spent six to seven months just making GPT-4 safe. Um, and we have a, a variety of processes that, that, that we do on what, what are, what's called a post-training basis. So um, a combination of fine-tuning and other things um, that we take really seriously to make sure that these models um, really respect uh, their users, really respect um, what we would consider to be uh, the bounds of kind of civil discourse and discussion, um, that they're, they're not prone to, to racist uh, or, you know, or otherwise inappropriate um, uh, responses. Uh, and there's a lot of work that goes into that. And it's, it's not trivial. Um, but for us, you know, the calculus is uh, we need these, these systems to be useful. Um, they can't be safe and they can't be broadly beneficial if they can't be trusted. Uh, and so the more work we can do and the more competency we can build as a company in making these systems safe, you know, not only is that important to our mission, but the, the better it is for for the world.
0: And you touch a little bit about how, uh, how this the soldier is made, uh, at least when it comes to safety. Uh, if you need to explain to a lay person who doesn't fully understand AI how this magic is created, because this definitely feels to many people like magic. I snap a picture, and I see something, or I type something, and I get an answer, which sounds human-like, uh, or this very smart human-like. How does it work?
1: Yeah. Well, so... Um and now I feel like I'm 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 being treated like ChatGPT. Explain this to me like I'm five. Yeah. Um, but the, the simplest way to think no, no, about five. It, Twelve. it. Yeah. There you go. Um, it's it's kind of like having having kids. Um, so it, you know, and in this case, though, the 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 kid starts with this really broad and quite um, quite complex understanding of of the world based on you know effectively a random sampling of the internet. And uh, of course, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that you know, you wouldn't be proud of, uh, certainly to have your kid know and repeat. Um, And so the process that we go through after the model, the base model is trained, is basically just teaching the model um, what's right and what's wrong and teaching it um, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And when you show it the patterns of, uh, basically of what um, it can and cannot do and you give it examples and then you critique it, you tell it, this was a good example, this is a bad example. Um, and this is a good answer and this is a bad answer, um, it starts to learn those patterns and it can incorporate those patterns back into how it's actually trained to respond. And um, we, we install what's called a reward function, basically, in, in the model. So we actually tell the model, we give it a reward signal effectively when it does something correctly, and we give it um, a, a negative reward signal when it does something incorrectly. Um, and so we apply a lot of human judgment there, uh, and we work with a lot of people who bring that judgment to bear in different domains. So it's not just how do you make the model not racist, for example, it's how do you make the model um, give a more factually useful answer in the context of chemistry or biology or economics. Uh, and that's, so we have to work with a really kind of broad, broad cross section of, of of experts to um, to try and tune, tune the model and tune that reward function.
0: I imagine ChatGPD is a big fat cat and it's getting a reward, it's like, yeah. <laughs>
1: So much Give it fun. a treat every time. Give yeah. it a
0: treat. Uh, forever, ChatGPT for you will be this big fat cat that uh, getting rewards for uh, uh, good behavior. You know, on this note, um, there's this. Of course, the joke said it's if it's it must be true if it's on the internet. Which of course it's not the case. How did you avoid the the uh, the situation of mo- not everything on the internet is true? Actually, a lot of what's on the internet is not true. Um, ha- there's not enough humans in the world to go and classify what's true and what's not. How do you make your models uh, mostly true most of the time?
1: Yeah, well, so a um, couple things. So part of it is the, the distribution of information on the internet for, the, for the, the topics that have, that are well represented in that distribution, generally have, you can generally infer a source of truth based on how much that, those facts are represented in the data. So you know, if if you wanted to go um, look up what is the you know um, the capital of a given state, the internet, by and large, will reflect truth there. You may get a few comments or a few jokes or whatever the of people saying, "Oh, the the capital of, um, uh, of of New York is is New York City, not Albany." Um, but uh, by and large, that that fact is well represented on the internet, and so it's going to you know, in the distribution of data that these models are trained on, it's, it's going to reflect that, you know, if you ask the model, it's going to reflect that the, the capital of New York is all um, the Um uh, The thing that's that's harder, though, is for the long tail, right, where there's not as rich of uh, a, a kind of collective understanding on the Internet of the truthfulness of a given thing. Um, and there, you know, it's a couple of things that we do. So one is um, kind of partly what I described in that process uh of basically doing that that, that post-training work that we do is how do you actually create evaluation sets that test for where the model's knowledge is a little shakier on certain topics? Because if you can find where the model has knowledge gaps, then you can start to fill those gaps in by giving it the correct answer and, like I said, defining that reward function in a way that rewards answers that are more factually correct. And interestingly, one of the things that we see is when when you teach a model to be correct about one thing, it actually makes its broader level of truthfulness and correctness higher on other things. So, if you can teach it a fact about biology and kind of hard, you know, more or less hardwire it to think that that is the right thing, and then you ask it a, an adjacent question, a related question about another thing, it's more likely to get a correct answer on that other thing, um, having known you know what, what the correct answer was on the previous thing. Um, and so there's an interesting pattern and relationship there that we can exploit just by giving it a little bit of example of of what's correct and what's not, and giving it a little bit of feedback. Um, but really, the thing, the way to think about these models is not as factual engines, right? They're not databases where there's a a, a, a piece of information stored in the database that can be retrieved on command. Um, they really are reasoning engines, and so they're trying to give you as best an approximation based on all of the knowledge they've kind of, you know, all of the, the, the things they've read in the books, so to speak, about, uh, you know, what, what might be the correct thing or what might be the thing that's most likely based on what you ask. Um, and the way that we tend to actually point people around the problem of factualness and truthfulness is really to supply it with source of truth data. So treat it as an engine that runs on top of a source of truth of data and let it go reference that data and reason about what the right answer might be in relation to the data it sees to be able to return you the best answer. And that's a mechanism that we call retrieval. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, you as a provider of, uh, of a service or, you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an owner of, of content or data have the thing that's correct. And the thing that you should use the model for is not to try and memorize that fact to regurgitate it, so much as to use it to reference that data set, reason about what the answer is, and then, and then return an answer that's, um, that satisfies the request. Uh, and so that, that's very much the kind of mode that we see uh, the technology deployed in that we think is really the right way to think about it.
0: So, so you describe a world in which there's a lot of human curation in making sure that these models work and provide the right answers. Uh, we hear that in China, AI models have to represent, for example, the, uh, the thoughts of, of uh, Xi as, as uh, the, the source of truth. Uh, how do you prevent outside influence for for really tilting the balance uh, or tilting the scale uh, when it comes to the answers that, that uh, OpenAI and the various ChatGPT models provide?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we we try and, and make sure that we we think the data that we train on is representative of uh, of the world and of the value systems that that we think are important to represent. So. Um, you know, we, we think that, you know, democratic values, human rights, and, you know, and giving the model an appreciation for those things is important. Um, and so uh, that all goes into the pre-training process. But, um, you know, I think you can always, I, I kind of look at it the other way, which is you can train these models on a lot of data and they're going to reflect that data. Um, the, when you want them to behave a certain way, it's almost always a, a post-training process. It's almost always a way that says, okay, the model has this very big and raw intelligence how do you start to narrow that intelligence so that it's really only applied or expressed in a certain way? And I think that's probably the work that you're describing that a lot of, you know, would be kind of authoritarian regimes uh, would would try and implement basically is to say, okay, we have a model that was trained on this big corpus of data. Now, how do we get the model to only respond in a certain way or only espouse certain values or um, or, or only express, you know, views a certain way? Um, and uh, and that's, you know, that's something that we, we think is, is bad. And we want to give, individuals more control over how the models, uh, you know, relate to them and express their values and reflect their values and their, their, their worldviews. Um, you know, the idea that kind of a centralized, uh, source of, um, uh, of truth, you know, basically a source of, uh, of control of, of that, uh, is, you know, of how those models respond in the broadest sense is, uh, is something we don't stand for.
0: Cool. Okay, I'm, 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 we're 15 minutes, 15 minutes in. I'm in mean, my question three. It uh, was interesting. I got a lot of new thoughts based on your answer, So uh, that's cool. But um, you, you've been out in the open for now 10 months now, um, getting tons of usage on, on ChatGPT on the web, which I'm sure all of you tried, but also through companies like Replica and many other companies that use uh, your APIs to get access. What have changed in your vision uh, since you launched, based on all these learnings that, that you got in the last 10 months?
1: One thing we have a new appreciation for is, um, is well, one is how, how like wide and messy and diverse the world is. Um, and then also how generalizable uh, these tools are to applying, you know, being applied to problems in every corner of the world. Um, I was talking to Amy Hood, who's the CFO at Microsoft the other day, and we were talking a little bit about how she's seen the Azure platform grow. And if you think about it, Azure really—you know—any cloud really is just—it's just compute, right? And it kind of is the most general level of infrastructure of technology. And she—I was—I was asking her, you know, if if she was surprised at how how large that um, that business had gotten. She was surprised at how large it gotten, how fast and how fast it had gotten that large. Um, and she said it. At first, yes, um, but in retrospect, no. Um, and the reason is because of how big the world is and how messy it is. Um, and if you can take the really, really general tools and apply those tools to solving any number of problems and give people the, the mechanisms and the means and the primitives to go combine and recombine those tools to point it at the problems they care about, people will do that. Um, and I've always really held that dear somewhat as a kind of philosophy for how we build up an AI is really we're tool builders. It's how do you take these models as a new tool? Give people exposed to people the, the ways that they can use those models to, to apply, you know, be applied to a problem. Um, and then you know, let the world have at it um, and give people an opportunity uh, to go pull the models and the intelligence layer into the things that they care about. And so whether it's support, or whether it's sales and marketing, or finance, or software engineering, um, or creative arts, um, these are all places that we've seen the models applied um, and we're, you know, where we've seen fairly dramatic impacts in some places um, and where I expect, you know, we, we ultimately will see um, a lot of, of development in the future.
0: And you, when, you, when you launch ChatGPT, GPT, the only way to interact with the model was just typing into it. Uh, now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, you can upload an image and ask it questions. I tried last week to, uh, I made a really nice challah, um for the whole day and I uploaded the image. Hey, can you give me a recipe from that? And it gave me a recipe, mine was still better, but um, at least it gave me a recipe. Uh, and, and you can interact with it using voice. Uh, when you think through the future, uh, this is all available today, and you can try it out. Um, what will be? What are some other ways that you would be interacting with a machine?
1: I think it'll be a combination of of all of the um, you know basically all of the senses that that we have, and so um, you know the ability to uh, to speak to it um, and have it speak back to you, uh, you know, in a very conversational and fluid way feels like it's going to happen fairly soon. Um, the idea that it should be able to see what you see and be able to interpret the visual world the way that you interpret the visual world um, is correct, and I think that you know that's an important unlock and a superpower that um, these models have that is not really yet appreciated. Um, we're really excited to roll out GPTV as widely as we can roll it out. Um, it's just an, it's probably the most amazing thing I've seen from this kind of current era in terms of how these models work and how they can reason about visual imagery. Um, and then you start to think you can extend that to other things. You can extend it to audio inputs. You can extend it to code inputs. You can extend send it eventually to video inputs. Um, and uh, it gives these models really a very vibrant you know, sense for the world and, and how to engage with it the way that we engage with it. We see things in motion, we see things in color, we hear things, um, and we read things. Uh, and um, I think you know, that's, we don't quite understand yet the, the impact that that all is going to have collectively.
0: You're in the center of it, and I wonder if there's anything that you see that's obvious to you that will happen in two, three years um, that is maybe not obvious to us. Like the way, do you imagine we're going to watch TV, and there's going to be a a banner running under it and tells a thing about the show? Or what do you think, what you envision, and this is not a plain question, so I don't know, find find something, uh, that will be very different in three, four years because of what you're creating now, cooking now, um, with your with your technology,
1: it's a good question, and and I always think with big phase shifts in technology that the the effects that have the greatest impact on the world are always hard to predict at the outset. Um, They're always second and third order effects that are the kind of non obvious things that you can kind of intuit. You would intuit when you first see the the core capabilities of the technology. So. One example would be like in the internet, you know, if you had asked someone in 1990 to have predicted, you know, the rise of social media, um, and then the kind of subsequent impact that large, you know, global scale social media companies would have on elections and on, you know, the, the social discourse and all of that. Um, I think it would have been hard to to have seen that. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the meme of the guy that kind of is, is, is um, uh, knocking over the first really small domino, and then it kind of escalates all the way to the super large domino. Uh, you know, that that's that's somewhat how I think about kind of how these things work. But, um, you know, for us, I think um, the the thing that kind of comes to mind is just that the the interaction model that people have with technology is going to change. And I think in some ways it's going to be really good. I think it's going to knock down a lot of barriers to access. It's going to lower the cost of access and the cost of, of quality um, in what people can do with tools like this. Meaning, you know, for example, if you can use these tools as assistive in a healthcare capacity, um, in areas where there's are shortages of doctors, um, you now can provide fairly high quality healthcare to more people at lower cost. Uh, and I think that's something that's going to be a you know a positive second order effect. Now, a you know a second order effect that may not be as positive or may not be as obviously positive um, is that people will have I think relationships with these tools that. Um, are in some ways emotional. right? I think these tools will get really good at being able to, unfortunately, manipulate people. Um, and so how do you build the safeguards in to make sure that these systems, A, don't have that capacity, um, and B, that there's clear demarcations uh, for when you're interacting with an automated system, an AI system, versus when you're not, um, and to make sure that the, 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 co- the nature of that discourse is um, is healthy and productive. Um, and I think these are just antibodies that we're going to have to build up as a society. Uh, I don't think there's a way to kind of, you know, legislate these things today per se. I think um, these are things that we're just going to have to figure out um, as we go. And, you know, we at OpenAI are trying to work as hard as we can to make sure that we're as transparent about seeing these things coming as we can be and, and working with relevant, you know, everyone from developers to, to policymakers to, um, you know, to, to c- c- civil institutions uh, to make sure that we're resilient to some of these things.
0: Yeah, one thing I really appreciate about this conversation, but also every time I, I heard Sam Altman uh, talking about OpenAI, is this humility. We just don't know everything, and we just try to be as uh, as good as we can in, in shaping this product in the best possible way, knowing that we don't know anything, everything. And I appreciate this humility, because if I heard that you guys know everything, I wouldn't have believed you. So knowing that you actually acknowledge that you don't know everything about what you create, but you're going to try to shape it as it goes, uh, create, a lot, create much more confidence, at least for me um, personally. So, you know, the, the next one I want to ask you is, there's a massive industry that was literally created uh, in and around um, uh, large language models and, and, and uh, open AI. What is your role in this industry? Where is where, where's, where's open AI and where is this rest of the universe that, that consumes open AI and other LLMs?
1: Yeah. Well, cer- certainly, the, I think the industry is is still somewhat sorting itself out. Um, it feels like we're almost in this kind of Cambrian period of, of, of the industry where there's a lot happening, there's a lot of companies getting formed, there's a lot of tools getting built, there's a lot of pieces getting filled in, a lot of standards getting established, But um, and it's happening at such a rapid clip that even it's hard for even us to keep up with everything. Um, where we fundamentally see our role, I think, is just pushing on the quality of intelligence. So... Um, you know, in kind of in accordance with our mission, right? Our goal is to really build the, the smartest possible models that we can, we can build and to push the technology on the intelligence spectrum as far as we can push it. Um, now, whether or not that's where the, the sum total of activity concentrates or not is unclear, but um, that's our goal. And we think that the, the really big society changing benefits that come from the technology will largely come from the really advanced and really intelligent systems. Um, the systems that are off figuring out new knowledge, new science, figuring out um ways to 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 combine and recombine um, you know c- compounds into new drugs and new treatments, new therapies, ways to to personalize education um, in a in a way that that um, we're really excited about. So um, that's our goal. Um, what we intend to do though, is serve that, you know, kind of like I was saying in my my example about Amy and Microsoft is really to be the tool builder. So I think one thing we've acknowledged is, how big and messy the world is, and that we can't go pull the technology into every nook and cranny that it is, is required, um, you know, for it to be effective in in the world. Um, and so, being able to to serve the technology to developers and to enterprises at the primitives level, right at a, at a basic level, um, so that people can kind of you know you do with it with it what they like um, within the bounds of what you know we we want to be kind of safe and acceptable use. Um, but uh, You know, so that's kind of where we see ourselves. Um, And I think that'll be everything from low-level APIs that that developers can use to to build really powerful applications um, all the way through ChatGPT-like experiences, which are a little bit more personal, a little bit more individualized, um, maybe a little bit more kind of consumer market ready. Um, And then, you know, taking that same logic and applying it to businesses, we recently launched something called ChatGPT Enterprise, which is a way basically for businesses to start to install the technology inside their enterprise in a way that's safe and respecting of, of, of data privacy and security, um, and, but even there, the idea is, is for, for companies and, and builders to be able to, to create new applications and new experiences on top of that. Um, and again, the idea being that like, we can only, we can't, we can't estimate what, what every possible use of the technology is. Um, and so letting people figure out ways to, uh, to incorporate it into their work, into their life, um, into their application, uh, that's ultimately gonna be the path to success.
0: So, so, Brad, you already touched on that. Um, we we talked for the last, what, 24 minutes about how exciting ChatGPT and AI mm-hmm. is, but many people are also scared of it. They hear about pri- data privacy. They hear about hallucinations. They hear about um, possible bias in in models. What are you doing to to um, um, not necessarily diffuse the fear, uh, but what, what have you built so uh, people can trust these models to protect their data and, and to... Um, to provide the right answers uh, based on the questions they ask.
1: Yeah. So uh, two things. One is um, anything that we build that that is um, uh, business facing um, by default. You know, it's we don't train on that data. We don't look at that data. Um, it's all encrypted, um, and you know, we we retain it basically for the purposes actually of monitoring it for abuse. So um, from a security perspective, you know, one thing we encourage companies and enterprises that are incorporating this this technology into their tools and applications, uh, is that these models are prone to abuse still. And so all it takes is one bad actor who can figure out how to jailbreak or exploit these models um, you know, for, for there to be a bad outcome. And we can do the programmatic monitoring on our side to make sure that that's uh, less likely to happen. And it's really rare, but it does, you know, in, 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 in rare instances where it does happen, we can generally detect it. Um, but still, if your preference from a, a privacy perspective is that we not do that, in a lot of cases we won't, um, and we'll work with you to get to the right answer from a data privacy perspective. Um, and then around halluc- you know, hallucinations and factualness and groundedness, um, goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier, which is, how do we build the tools so that people can incorporate the source of truth data that they want the model to have knowledge of, uh, you know, connect that basically to the, the reasoning engine, the, the core model, you know, that the intelligence layer of the model and combine those two things so that, that the model can reason about that information and return answers that are sensible and related to that data. So, you know, in, if you're, if, for example, you have a, a support playbook, right? And you really, and that's your source of truth for how you handle all support cases. There's no way that the model has that knowledge inherent in its in its knowledge base from from having been trained. It's never seen that. But it can reason about how to answer questions, referencing that as almost like an open textbook in a, in a you know, in an open book exam. And so how do you build the pieces to set that that arrangement up such that it can do that in real time, you know, on the fly, and, and you can actually build the assisted tool that you want to build for, for your teammates or your support agents? Um, that would be kind of a good example of the types of, of things that we'll enable over the next few months.
0: And speaking of service and customer support, um, the, this room is full of people that either already use AI, um, they are, these are customers or people who want to use AI, uh, but if you... Go look wider uh, in the customer service industry. AI is hardly used in an impactful way. So what would be your advice to people here and, and everybody else in the industry? Is time now, or should they wait for a better model, for next iteration, for safer? Like what, what, what do you think about timing? What do you think about the current readiness of what you offer um, and what the industry offers at large uh, to solve customer service issues?
1: Yeah, no. I think the time is now. Um, you know, I, we one mistake we see is people come to us and think, okay, I want to entirely rebuild. You know, my entire support stack basically on top of these tools. I think that's a that's a tall order right now. Um, although eventually, I do think that that is how most most support organizations will operate. Um, is there'll be a an extremely high level um, uh, of of you know incorporation of these tools into the support workflow in a way that really allows for what is a level of support and service that I think we can kind of only dream of today in terms of how personal and reliable um, and, uh, and rapid and, and informed it is. Um, and so, uh, but I, the places to start today, so we've actually done this experiment a little bit internally at OpenAI, but uh, there's a funny story here. So we, when we launched ChatGPT, um, one of the, the byproducts of, of launching a product that gets to that, that scale that quickly is you end up with a lot of support tickets. Um, there's a lot of people who email in and want to know answers to questions. They are not sure exactly how they got locked out of their account, you know, because they forgot their password or whatever the thing may be. Um, we ended up with hundreds of thousands of these tickets. Um, and we had a really, really small support team. Um, we had, like, I think something like three or four people on the operations side. Um, and then, a, you know, basically a handful of, um, uh, of, of, uh, of folks that we worked with on an outsourced basis. And so no one was prepared for that avalanche of, uh, of tickets. Um, and one of the things that we did was we really kind of started from scratch and basically said, how do we use GPT-4 to start to solve this problem? And the first thing we did was basically use GPT-4 as a really effective classifier. So um, one of the things that GPT-4 is great at is uh, it can, given a, a set basically of, of possible issues, it can read an email or a ticket um, and infer based on the, the, the tone and context of that email what issue that ticket is related to, even if that issue wasn't explicitly stated in the email or the ticket. And so we got to this really rich classification. I think we had an ontology of of something like 50 different different classification categories. Um, And that actually let us start to parse that big bucket of tickets. Um, And then we actually could use GPT-4 to start to write programmatic responses to some of those tickets. We could actually use it basically as a routing agent for certain tickets that required more of a human touch, that are you know high severity tickets, um, and that's actually the system that we're continuing to build on today. Um, and so maybe we've we've somewhat run the experiment internally, but um, I expect you know I expect for us that over the next few years we'll have a, a, a nearly kind of entirely GPT four um, you know and eventually whatever the future models are um, powered uh, experience for, for our support, and I think we can do that at fairly high quality. Uh, maintaining a super high CSAT and do it, you know, with an SLA of something like eventually, you know, a few minutes, uh, basically, for, for a response.
0: That's amazing, Brad. We, we kind of run a little over and I know you have a busy day. So I want to uh, thank you for your time. Enjoy uh, Las Vegas and, and everybody else. Thank you. Thank Brad for joining us. Thank you all for having me. All right. That was a great conversation. Thank you very much, Brad, for joining us um, uh, here in Nashville. Uh, I really love the conversation and appreciate the amount of effort that, that OpenAI puts in R&D and making a world a slightly better place. Um, and I hope you enjoyed the uh, the show. Quick reminder, uh, Resolve was a customer service uh, conference in Nashville, and we're doing a rewind for Resolve on November 16th. Link to sign in is in the uh, episode uh, notes. Thank you very much. And until next time.